swirling, turbulent skies filled with all kinds of stars, bright and brilliant and blazing stars and various hues of yellow hovering above. A quiet, peaceful southern French village just before sunrise. If you're wondering what this image is that I'm describing, you've probably seen it. It's Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night Painting. The Starry Night was painted in the late 1800s. As I said, it was painted by the post-impressionist artist and Dutch artist Vincent van Gogh. It's one of the most well-recognized and iconic paintings in all of the world. Now, if you're wondering if I'm here to give you an art lesson today, the answer is no. You're probably like, who's this guy, Bob Ross? No, I'm not Bob Ross. I'm not here to give you an art lesson. I'm not here to do any of that. So rest assured, don't worry. But you know, now that it's summer, I have been thinking about changing my hairstyle and like, you know, just growing it out a little bit, getting a little fro maybe, you know? Like, I don't know. I've been thinking about, you know, now that things are opening up, just think about letting my hair down, right? Mm, I don't know. But the Starry Night is one of the most famous and well-recognized paintings in the world. And again, Vincent van Gogh, he is one of the most brilliant artists of all time. But what few people know are the struggles that Vincent van Gogh had to go through before he painted the starry night. You see, Vincent van Gogh, as brilliant as he was, as great of a painter as he was, he struggled mightily with mental illnesses and with depression. He struggled so much with mental illnesses that at one point in his life, he even admitted himself into a mental health asylum. The Starry Night, one of the most beautiful, popular paintings of all time, ironically, was painted from the east-facing window in Van Gogh's room in this mental health institution. And after he painted it, it's very likely that he didn't think much of it because much of Van Gogh's art was rejected while he was alive. Did you know Vincent Van Gogh only sold one painting while he was alive? But eventually, the true quality and value of the starry night would be recognized and discovered for what it is, a masterpiece I think a lot of us here today, watching online and here today in this room with us this morning, are kind of like a starry night painting, a Vincent van Gogh painting. What I mean is this, have you ever felt rejected in your life? Have you ever felt rejected by friends, maybe family, colleagues, peers, Have you ever, for whatever reason, felt like you just didn't have much value, like you didn't have much worth? Have you ever felt at one point in your life that you just didn't measure up? Like you just didn't have it. You weren't good enough. You weren't smart enough. You weren't skilled enough. You weren't talented enough. You weren't attractive enough. You weren't beautiful enough. You weren't smart enough. Maybe instead of feeling like a beautiful work of art per se, you felt like the opposite. Like damaged goods. Like something that should just be thrown away and discarded. But this is not the truth. The truth is is that you were created by God who is the great artist of the universe and you are God's masterpiece. I have a great affinity for alt and culture and I like it all. I mean, everything from abstract art to architecture to even music and film festivals like 
Austin zone, Austin city limits. I love movies, black and white, and classic Hollywood films especially. I like movies so much that I even go to the theater and watch movies by myself sometimes. Anyone else here do that? Yeah, no shame. Frozen 2? Moana? Ooh! Coco? Straight fire. But I love movies and I love art, but the reason why I like art so much is because it has played an integral part in my own journey and specifically in my own healing journey. You see, I'm from Southern Louisiana, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I love my hometown and I love Louisiana. I still have so many people there who I know, who I'm friends with, people who are very dear to me, my parents live there. And again, I love so many things about Louisiana. I love Louisiana culture. I love my Louisiana sports teams. I love, you know I love my Louisiana Cajun food. Ooh! Seafood, gumbo, crawfish, etouffee, fried catfish, beignets. Just got real. Just got real for some of y'all. But I love so many things about Louisiana and my hometown of Baton Rouge. But as much as I love Baton Rouge, and as much as I love Louisiana, it was actually challenging for me growing up there as a child. You see, my parents are both from Seoul, South Korea. I'm Korean American. And as I was growing up in Louisiana, a lot of the kids around me in my neighborhoods and in my schools didn't accept me. They didn't like me because of the color of my skin, because I was an Asian kid, and because I was different from them. Kids used to make fun of me. They used to call me the meanest and harshest things. They even physically used to hurt me sometimes. I remember in the third grade at Greenville Elementary School, I was just an eight-year-old lad. I went to a restroom one day down at the end of one of our school halls. When I walked into this restroom, I saw another young boy there, a boy I'd never seen before, who I'd never met or talked to ever and didn't say one word to this day. When this boy saw me, he suddenly approached me and then he took his arm and he swung it as hard as he could around his body and clocked me right in the head. I remember standing there just as an eight-year-old kid, so confused, asking myself, why did that just happen? What did I do? I didn't say one thing to that little boy. Blood was slowly flowing down my face from where the boy struck me. What did I do? I didn't do one thing to that other young boy. You can imagine how hard it was for me as an eight-year-old trying to process something like that. As children, you know, we're so innocent and vulnerable right, we're still very much developing our minds and our reasoning and our logic and our faculties are still in process. They're not near completion, right? And because of this, I stood there alone in that restroom, again, as an eight-year-old, so confused, trying to process what just happened and why it happened. And eventually, because of how young I was, I came to the conclusion that what happened was actually my fault. Yeah. That what happened took place because you know what? There was something actually wrong with me. I deserved what happened. These are lies, of course, but the reality is is that we have a spiritual adversary in this world. I wasn't aware 
of the spiritual component of this life at that young age. But that's the reality of the world that we live in, that there is a spiritual adversary in this world. And it's like, as eight-year-old John was standing alone in that restroom, so confused, trying to figure out what just happened. It's like the enemy snuck up behind me and just whispered right in my ear, hey, buddy, you know why that just happened? It's because there must be something wrong with you. Those were lies, of course, but again, the reality is, is there is a spiritual adversary in this world. I don't know what you think of the devil. Many people call him the enemy. Maybe you picture the devil as this creature with spikes on his head, a pitchfork in his hand. Maybe you don't believe in the devil at all, but he exists. And the Bible describes him as cunning, as crafty, and as a liar. Scripture actually calls him the father of lies. In John 8, describes him this way. He was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let me ask you, what's the lie you're believing today? Go ahead, ask yourself that question. What is the lie that you woke up this morning believing? What is the lie that you walked into this space believing? These were the kind of lies that I believed when I was growing up. And I had so many other similar experiences. And as they were happening, I didn't know it, but they were slowly shaping my own view of myself. I had never even talked about these experiences until later in my life. I didn't realize how profound of an impact they had on me until I was much older and I looked back and reflected on these events. These experiences made me believe that there was in fact something wrong with me and something wrong with me on a fundamental level. Like I was some kind of defected product, damaged goods. I mean, after experiencing similar event after event after event after event with the same theme of rejection, with this common thread, it's like the enemy, (laughs) that crafty spiritual adversary in this life and in this world. It's like he took all of those events and those common themes, constructed and fabricated this false narrative about myself and about my life and presented it to me and convinced me that it was true. You know, I felt ugly on the inside and on the outside. I felt like I didn't have much value. And I don't tell you this to make you feel bad this morning because God eventually redeemed these lies and showed me the truth of who I was as someone that was made by him. I've had a very unique journey throughout my life, which has included living in Los Angeles, California for about five years. Los Angeles was so formative for me in my journey. I'm a person who is deeply passionate about art, culture, creativity, and innovation. And Los Angeles is a big reason why. In Los Angeles, I went to a church called Mosaic that's led by a pastor named Erwin McManus. And Erwin McManus wrote a book called The Artisan Soul. And this book changed my life. 
The premise of the artisan soul is that God, the God of life and of the universe, is a creative God. And God made all of us in his image. And because we were made in his image and he is a creative God, we are all fundamentally creative beings as well. This book had such a deep impact on my life. Many of Erwin McManus's principles from the artisan soul I'm sharing with you today. And God used this book to dispel the lies that I had believed as a child and help me discover the truth of who I was as someone made in his image. And now that I know this truth, I'm passionate about this truth and helping others know this truth as well. For example, a few years ago in my hometown of Baton Rouge, I participated in a small local art event. And at this art event, I met another young artist who, to protect our privacy, I'll call her Sarah. Sarah was such a talented artist, so much more skilled and talented than me. I was walking around this art event, staring and admiring her work and just saying to myself, geez, this artist is good. So much better than me. Man, she's talented. Eventually, I ran into Sarah at this art event, introduced myself to her, and we started chatting. Told her how much I admired her work, how awesome her work was. She thanked me. She was shy, so she responded bashfully. And then suddenly, in just this short conversation that we had, Sarah, this girl who I had just met and who I barely knew, did something very surprising. She started opening up to me in a very personal way. She disclosed to me that, you know, she was actually very unhappy. And she told me that she really didn't like herself very much. You see, when she was younger, she grew up with a father who was so harsh and so callous with her. And he used to tell Sarah the harshest things on a regular basis. He would tell her that she was ugly. He would tell her that there was something wrong with her. He would even tell her that she was a monster. Because of these lies that Sarah was told on a regular basis, she eventually internalized these lies, believed them, embraced them, and she hated herself because of it. She shared with me that she despised herself and hated herself so much that every now and then she would even cut herself. My heart broke. But this wasn't the last time I would see Sarah. A few weeks later, I ran into Sarah at a store in town. I asked her, hey, Sarah, how are you doing? We started chatting again. And as we were talking, I was just staring at this precious young soul. And I could sense and see this deep sadness and darkness within this young girl. I reflected back on our first conversation and how she shared with me how she didn't like herself very much. And in that moment, I glanced out in her arm and I could see all of these cuts and scars on the bottom of her wrist. Here is this precious young soul, so talented, so gifted, so skilled, so special. But because of lies that were told to her at a young age and instilled in her, this precious young soul absolutely hated herself. And she suffered on every single level, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, holistically, as a living being. 
So much that this living being didn't even want to live. Again, she was told these lies about who she was and how she was brought forth into this world. She adopted this false narrative about her life and about who she was. When her father told her these awful things, she wrapped her malleable young soul around these lies and defined herself through them. Sadly, many of us here and many of us watching have had similar experiences. Not the same experiences, maybe not to the same degree or the same severity. Some of you have experienced worse. But we have all had experiences in our lives where at some point we received and we interpreted either directly or indirectly these false messages about who we are. And we believed and we embraced and we internalized these lies and we adopted a false narrative about our lives and developed a false sense of our own worth, value, and identity. But these lies are not the truth about how God made us. So then what is the truth? Well, before I answer that question, let me respond by asking you another question. Who is God to you? How do you see God today? How do you identify God? What is your perception of God? Maybe you call God Father, Lord, Savior, Ruler, King, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, God Almighty, all of these things Names and characteristics of God are true. But did you know that God is also an artist? Seriously, ask yourself that question. Do you think about God as an artist? Because he is. He is creator, the creator. I love that when we open the scriptures the first thing that we see the God of all of life in the universe do is create. Literally the first verb of the Bible is create. God is an artist. You think about God in this way. The Bible begins this way. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created. God created the entire universe and all of his beauty and wonder and majesty and complexity. I mean, he created light. He created stars and galaxies. He created mountains and lakes, oceans, trees, forests, flowers, and fruit. He created beautiful vegetation. He created living creatures. He created animals. He created fish. He created birds. He created Star Wars dogs. They can only be found in a galaxy far, far away. Very rare species. Sometimes you can even find them in South Austin. But after creating all of the beauty that we see in creation, God wasn't done. No, God saved his best for last, his highest craftsmanship, his creation that he put the most intention into. His magnum opus, his crowning jewel, the crowning achievement of all that he made, his grand finale, his masterpiece. Do you know what God created? God created you. And me. 
humanity was God's greatest creation. Genesis 1 describes it this way when God made us. And then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image, in the divine image. God created them, male and female, God created them. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, right. God's greatest creation, me, come on. Seriously, there's no way. Hold on. If God is God, then God is perfect, right? He has to be if he's God. That means he's flawless. That means he's all-knowing. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. And God is an artist. We established that already. And everything God creates is good. Why? Because everything God creates is a reflection of his own character, of his own nature, And God is good. Therefore, everything God creates has to be good. It's impossible for God to create something that is not good. In the book of Genesis, in the opening chapter, the opening chapter of the Bible, we see this unique process of God creating all of life and all of the universe. For example, again, God creates the light. God creates the sky, the waters. God creates animals, living creatures. And in this account, we see that every time God created something, it says it was good. But only after God created humanity does he say, and it was very good. When God made you, he said it was very good. It is very good. God made humanity in a way that was different from everything else he had made in creation. There was something set apart about human beings, something royal, something divine, something sacred, something special. Why? Because God made humanity to resemble him. God made humanity to be like him in a way. God created humanity in his divine image. Erwin McManus in The Artisan Soul describes it this way, while all creation declares the image of God, we humans bear the image of God. Erwin McManus is saying that, yeah, everything in creation, the stars and the galaxies and animals and and nature, all reflect God's glory and his goodness and his beauty, but only humanity bears God's image. That word image It refers to something like that of a statue that's been carved or cut out of a source. One scholar describes it this way. He says it refers to a monument that's been crafted in the likeness of an ancient Near Eastern king that would be set up in and at the borders of his domain in order to identify his claim to dominion. This is the ruler of this kingdom. They represent me, the creator of all of life. I lived in New York City for five years as well. And I moved to New York City when I was really young. I moved there when I was 20 years old. Um, It was my first time moving away from home. Uh, I moved completely on my own, lived on my own for the first time. And let me just say, it was quite the experience. I mean, Baton Rouge and New York City, there's just a little contrast, right? Just a little. I felt like the Asian Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone 2. I was like, whoa, what am I doing here? Ah, 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 ah." 
I went from the burbs of Louisiana to suddenly this concrete jungle where there's this constant hustle and bustle, all of this commotion around me, people left and right, not always the friendliest people. Boy, did I miss my Southern hospitality. All these towering skyscrapers above me. I was like, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Or Louisiana, rather. But as busy and overwhelming as New York City can be, it's undeniable that there's something inspiring and beautiful about it. I would just walk to school and work every day, and I would just casually pass by all of these famous buildings and attractions that previously I'd only seen on TV and in movies, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, Brooklyn Bridge, Times Square, the Rockefeller Center, Lincoln Center, Radio City Music Hall, the New York Stock Exchange, Wall Street. Whenever I graduated from college, I went to work for this corporate company in Midtown Manhattan. I worked in a building called the Grace Building. We worked on the 42nd floor. And I remember one day my coworkers peeping outside the window looking to the ground level because on the ground level were the actors Harrison Ford and Rachel McAdams filming a movie on the ground level of the building I worked in. I was like, Rachel, the notebook. I'm its biggest fan. Just kidding. <clears throat> Not kidding. But it's amazing the sights and the sounds that you will see in New York City. Another one of the most popular attractions in New York is the Statue of Liberty. It was a statue that was created in the late 1800s. It stands at about 300 feet tall, towering over the New York Harbor. It's a national landmark, but really, it's one of the most iconic statues in the world. The reason why the Statue of Liberty is such a big attraction is because there's something beautiful and inspiring and mesmerizing. Some even say majestic about it. And aside from being a tourist attraction for years, it served as this welcoming symbol to the millions of people who've arrived to this country and passed by it. A symbol of freedom and democracy. In the same way, God crafted you and I to be like a symbol of God so that we could reflect him to the world and so that we could point people back to him. When I was really young, um, I remember my aunt, she made my mom this very unique gift. It was a unique piece of art. Um, using a needle and thread, she knit and wove together this intricate image of three different flowers side by side. She framed it in this beautiful gold trim and gave it to my mom as a gift. We hung it up on our wall in our house. I remember as a young boy just passing by this piece of art. And every time I saw it, I would marvel and just think to myself, man, how did she do that? I mean, again, just using a needle and thread to create this intricate image of flowers. I imagine my aunt, as she was creating this, taking so much time and detail and precision and intentionality to create this unique piece of art. Underneath each respective image, she even used that same needle and thread to inscribe the name of each flower. I'm all about efficiency, so I would've just taken a Sharpie and wrote rose, daisy, daffodil. But not my aunt. She took the time and the detail to inscribe the name of each flower. God created you and I in the same way. He created us in the deepest intimacy with love and purpose and intention. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Last week, our guest speaker, Nona Jones, who did a fantastic job 
spoke about how we are all made in our mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13 through 15 highlights this intimate process. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. You were made in secret. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, referring to this reverence, referring to this awe when you were made, referring to something that's made that is extraordinary, breathtaking. You are woven together in the depths of the earth. This is how you are and how you were created. Is this how you see yourself? This is so different from what my friend Sarah was told, isn't it? This is so different from what you were told and what you believed. It's certainly different from what I was told and what I believed. But not only did God make us in the deepest intimacy, he also specifically made our hearts. You know, this is what I absolutely love about the God of the universe. God is so big and so great and so vast and so powerful. But even though God is so big and so great, he is also so intimate. God is so personal, so personable. God is like your friend, your very best friend. And not only did God create you, he specifically created your heart. Psalm 139, 13 says, for you created my inmost being. What is this inmost being? It's your heart, it's your soul. It's the center of who you are. It's the core of your being. It's your innermost part. Who created it? God created it. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? It means only God defines you. Not anything anyone has ever said to you. Not any hurtful or painful thing someone said to you. Not any lie you have been told. Not any hurtful or painful experience you've ever had in your life that you did absolutely nothing to deserve. Only God defines you. And what does God say about you? He says, you're my masterpiece. He says, I made you in my image. He says, I love you. I made you on purpose. I made you with intention. You were supposed to be here. I have a purpose for you. God made our hearts and God wants your heart and thinks your heart is so beautiful. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Your heart is so beautiful to God. God wants your heart and cherishes your heart so much, so that, so much that he wants to live in your hearts. Ephesians 3, 17 says, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. The God of the universe who created all of life, who created it all wants to dwell in the hearts of human beings? Amazing. He chooses as his dwelling place our hearts. But here's the thing, God doesn't force his way into our hearts. No, that's not who God is. Yes, the God who who made all of us, who made our entire being, who made us in the deepest intimacy, who specifically made our hearts, the center of who we are, the core of our being, the center of our being. But God still doesn't force his way into the hearts 
of those he created. Why? When God created humanity, he didn't create us to order us around and boss us around. When God created humanity, he didn't intend to create robots. God is a relational God. The most relational being in all of life, in all of the world. God wants to have a relationship with us, with you. Therefore, God doesn't force his way into our hearts. No, rather, he wants us to invite him into our hearts. You see, when God first created the world and humanity, humanity had a perfect relationship with God. He created humanity to be in this beautiful love relationship with him, to be like him in a way. But eventually humanity turned from God and became separated from God. As a result, we decided to go our own way. Humanity also lost this knowledge of who they were created by and how they were created in the divine image of the God of all of life and all of creation. Our views of ourselves became broken and skewed and distorted. We became broken. But even after we turned away from God, God didn't turn away from us. Even after we rejected God, God didn't reject us. He didn't just leave us as a lost cause. No, God did something remarkable. He drew even closer to us. When we turned from God, God pursued us even harder. When we rejected God, God chased after us and came after us even harder. And he took a risk. He put himself completely out there and made himself completely vulnerable. What did he do? The God who created all of life in the universe came down to this earth. He came as a man to be with us. And he lived with us and he talked with us. And he enjoyed life with us. He explained the scriptures to us. His name was Jesus. And he explained how the scriptures pointed to him, how they reflected him and spoke about his coming. He celebrated with us. He went to weddings and parties and he played and embraced with little kids and he helped the sick and he helped the poor. And eventually he called us friends. The God of this universe calling us his creation, friends. And then eventually he died for us. The one who created it all, all of life and all of creation. And who came down to this earth to be with us. Willingly was crucified on a cross poured out his blood so that my sins, your sins, all of our mistakes, blemishes could be 100% completely forgiven and eradicated, removed for all time. But Jesus died for so much more than this. Jesus died to take all of the lies we've ever been told about who we are, all the false messages and identities we've received, all of the hurtful and painful experiences we've ever had, the ones that made us question how much worth and how much value we have, all the pain that you walked into here with this morning, all the pain that you're carrying this morning, all of our wounds and our scars that we picked up along the journeys of our life, all of our brokenness, all of our broken and distorted and damaged views of ourself. Jesus died to take all of these things and to show us the truth 
about who we really are, to show us how much we're really worth, to show us how much value we really have, to show us how beautiful we really are, to show us how loved we are by him. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to go as far as dying on a cross and he rose again from the dead so that you and I could be in a relationship with him forever. Lies you have been told throughout your life. They're not true. How do I know, John, you might be saying, how do I know? They seem so real. And it's like Jesus is saying, this is how. This is how you know. This is the truth of who you are. This is how valuable you really are. I would go this far so that I could be with you forever, my bride. God died and rose again from the dead to show us how valuable we are, but it doesn't end here. When we invite God into our lives, God, the great artist of all of life who created us in his image, but we became broken. God redeems humanity and restores his image into humanity, but this time the image of his son, Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image with intensifying glory. When we invite Jesus into our lives and into our hearts, God, the great master artist, transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. And God makes us into a masterpiece so that we can do good in this world and so that we can bring good into our communities and so that we can help others who don't don't know him, to know him, the one who also created them, who also created them in his image, who also created their hearts, who also created their most inward being, and who also created them to be a masterpiece because he loves them so much. Ephesians 2 says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, this message just doesn't really resonate with me. Maybe you already know this truth. Praise God, I really do celebrate that with you. But you should know that there are so many others around you who do struggle with what we're talking about today. I wanna ask you to consider how you might help those around you walk in this truth. For the rest of us, how do we apply this message? Well, first, if you're here or if you're watching online and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I wanna invite you to receive that today. I made this decision when I was a freshman in college and the biggest knucklehead in the world is the best decision I've ever made. You can receive a relationship with Jesus just by inviting him into your heart, into your life by praying out loud or in your heart, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in what you did for me. I invite you into my life and into my heart. It's also important that we replace the lies with what we see in God's word. John 8, 32 says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, let me ask you, what's the lie you've believed? I wanna encourage you to go to God's word and see what God's word says about that area of your life. Not long ago, we here at Gateway went through a series called Triggered, where John Burke, our senior pastor, spoke about we've all made these agreements, these beliefs about ourselves that are simply not true. And instead of living by these agreements, we need to make new agreements based on what we see in God's word. The lie I believe was that there is something wrong with you, John. But now I know the truth. Now I'm able to say, no, no. God's word says I'm his masterpiece. God's word says I was made in his image. God's word says he knitted me together in my mother's womb. We also need others to help us identify the lies and walk in the truth. 
Our recovery ministry here at Gateway is fantastic. I went through it myself and so did many others I know. I wanna encourage you to look into it, to invest in it. Our 12-step program is a great resource that you help you with this. Lastly, a great next step to knowing and living as God's masterpiece is by being in community. None of us were meant to live alone. If this pandemic taught us anything, it's that. We need others to live life with, to enjoy life with, to live out our identity together. This is why we have community groups here at Gateway so that we can experience loving community here in the church and why we have life groups so that we can grow spiritually together. A long time ago, there was this guy named Vincent Van Gogh. And one day in his room in this mental health institution that he was in, that he was in because he was in agony and suffering so much with mental illness, he made this painting called The Starry Night, looking out of his window, painting what he saw. He made this painting. It's very likely that he didn't think much of it and that others didn't as well. Do you know how much a starry night is worth today? Over $100 million. If there's one thing that you take away from this, let it be this. God is an artist and you are God's masterpiece.